Welcome to Remnant Christian Center's podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message. Last week I basically gave you my testimony of how the Lord had taken me to Ephesians 4.11 and began to give me understanding via scripture and with uh, real experiences concerning a fivefold ministry. And um, it's not a new teaching. Uh, obviously, it's been in the Bible since it was written. Uh, but as far as, as far as it being proclaimed in our era, it really began to be spoken of uh, prominently beginning with the Latter Rain Movement. Latter Rain Movement was the revival that occurred about 20, 30 years after the Pentecostal movement began in 1906. And so it's not a new thing, it just hasn't worked. And it hasn't worked because people have heard the teaching and then they get caught up with titles and position and, uh, and focusing on them and building their kingdom and not understanding, like I hopefully if you got anything out of last week, is that each of these five gifts is one-fifth of the mantle and the anointing of Christ. And Christ wants to feed the world with himself, not with us. He said, if you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, unless you do, you have no part in me. And he is the answer. There is a very prominent prophetic minister by the name of Paul Cain. And he was asked to speak at a conference years ago. And he tells this story, uh, even though he had been in ministry for a very long time. In fact, when William Branham was too sick to minister at his conferences, he had this young 18-year-old boy named Paul Cain to fill in for him because he says he was the only one that flew at the, that flowed at the same level that he did in terms of revelation. So now years later, he's like the most prominent speaker at IHOP when Kansas City was first getting launched and started. He mentored, you know, partly mentored John Paul Jackson and, and uh, countless others and Sean Boltz. And he was nervous speaking before this conference the next day. And he fell asleep meditating on the words of the famous African theologian, St. Augustine, who wrote this book called Confessions. And he wrote, he read this, and he fell asleep meditating upon this, that St. Augustine said, you, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself, Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. And he fell asleep meditating upon that, that we were created to rest in God. Somewhere in the middle of the night, he's awoken with this pressure in his chest. And he's still groggy. He's coming out of his sleep, and he's wondering, oh, my God, this pressure is so intense. You know, could this be a heart attack? You know, because everyone's heard that that one of the signs of a heart attack is, is the pressure on your chest. And when he actually gets the cobwebs out of his eyes and he opens his eyes, he realizes where the pressure's coming from. And there's this gigantic finger that's pushing down on his chest. And he knew immediately it was the finger of the Lord. And he has this conversation. He goes, God, what are you doing? I need to rest. I got a minister for you tomorrow. And the Lord spoke to him audibly and said, you think you have to rest. You fall asleep meditating upon you trying to find your rest in me. What about me? I've moved through many, but I've rested in few. And it's been a long time since I rested in you. God is looking for a people that he won't just visit, but that he can have a place of habitation. And it's so easy to be caught up, and I love church history, I love history, period, to be caught up on the different God's generals and the different mighty movements and revivals that go on. 
But all of those, although they began great, guess what? They ended because they were moves of the Spirit. And I love this sign I saw in his church one day, and it says, God doesn't want visitation rights. He wants full custody. And God is looking for a place that he can inhabit and remain. And so I want to speak to you today about new wineskins. And what happens is when God pours his spirit, he likens it as a, as a simile, a metaphor to wine. And Jesus gave us the understanding that when we seek God, that the natural response is God's going to pour forth his spirit. And God's going to pour the wine. But what happens is if you pour new wine in an old wineskin, then the wineskin will burst. And that's what's happened throughout all the ages. From the, from the Protestant movement with Martin Luther to the Holiness movement with the Wesleyan brothers to the Pentecostal movement with William Batty Seymour to the Lateran movement, the Charismatic movement, more recently the Brownsville revival, the Lakeland revival, how about the, the, uh, the Toronto uh, Air Vineyard revival. All of these were tremendous moves of God where God poured his wine, his blessings, his anointing into the church, but there was not a wine skin, a structure to contain it. And God doesn't want to visit us. He wants a place that he can settle in and say, this is home. And the problem is not with God. The problem has been with us. You cannot pour new wine in an old wineskin because wine ferments in time. And there is a molecular change in the liquid that causes it to expand and contract and expand and contract. Makes it very difficult for tradition to set in when things are constantly changing and evolving. Okay, I know how we don't believe in evolution the way Charles Darwin taught it. But the Bible teaches of a spiritual evolution because we go from faith to faith and from strength to strength and from glory to glory. When we follow God, God is constantly evolving, and an old wineskin has lost its ability, its elasticity to be able to contain that wine. And so what's happened is, is we get this wineskin, this wine of the five-fold ministry, and we try to pour it into an old wineskin of a one-man pastoral system, and it just has not worked. And what happens is the wine is, the wineskin bursts, the wine's all over the place, and then we have trickles of wine over here in the apostolic camp, and trickles of wine in the prophetic camp, and trickles in the teaching camp, and the pastoral camp, and the evangelistic camp, and it loses the purpose for which it was poured forth, and that was to intoxicate the world to the reality of who Jesus is. God's math is very different from our math, and I realized if they were going to understand the things of the Spirit, we're going to have to understand what God is trying to communicate to us. It says in Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my way, saith the Lord. And so I learned in elementary school in basic arithmetic that one plus one equals one, but in God's math, one plus one, plus one equals two. Sorry, I went ahead. John was about to pull the hook and hit the, hit the gong. He's like, one plus one equals two. See, I'm already in the spirit before I get into the flesh. And so... But the Bible says, when, when, for this cause shall a man leave his mother and father, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So one plus one becomes one in the spirit realm, not two. You know, if I can deadlift a thousand pounds, and John Kimmer can deadlift a thousand pounds, and both of us combined would be able to deadlift 2,000 pounds, but that's not how God's math is. In Deuteronomy, it tells us where one can put a thousand to flight. Hey. 
Facts. who can put 10,000. So there is a compounding explosion that occurs in unity. And so his math is different from our math. And one of the things that he taught me was that unless we understand how the fivefold ministry fits into the threefold government of the church, three divided by five equals one, unless we understand a divine equation, we're never going to get it. There will always be separate camps. We, if, we, if we keep confusing gifts and government, we're never going to understand and never have a wine skin to contain the wine that God desires to pour forth. I came from a... a a two-book school. What I mean by that is, is that whenever we didn't understand something in the Old Testament, we would say, oh, that's Old Testament. You know, and that was, I mean, if some of you feel that way, I'm not trying to harp on you, I'm talking about myself. But I was a two-book, you know, Christian. And then I, then I came across the passage where Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, okay, but to fulfill the law. And I realized that every scripture in the Bible is relevant for today. Now, a lot of it can take on, has taken on a spiritual application, right? I don't have to slice a goat and sack, well, we do to make a goat stew. But, <laughs> but I don't have to sacrifice one for my sins, per se. Amen? And so, there, but, but we still give a sacrifice of praise. And so everything in the Old Testament takes on a spiritual application that we don't understand is not applicable for today. And I want you to understand that because I came from that. You know, Paul talks about, he uses this phrase, I don't want you to be ignorant. And he says it four times in scripture. He says it in Romans concerning the role of Israel with the church today. He says it in um, Thessalonians concerning end time teaching. He says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in reference to the gifts of the Spirit. And he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 on the role of the Old Testament in the life of the New Testament believer. On those four areas, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And it's those four areas that the church is the most ignorant of. We have more fights over the role of Israel, the role of the Old Testament, end time teaching, gifts of the Spirit, than any other topic in the Bible. And... Paul says in Galatians 3.24, he wants to make it really clear that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so we say, oh, that's the law. That's Old Testament. We're not under the law anymore. And we're missing the point. We may, we're not under the law in the natural, but we're still in the law of the spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he tries to explain that. And it says in verse, uh, for I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, verse 1, how our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All of us. That means all of us. Well, I wasn't there. In the spirit you was. And I'll tell you when it happened. Because he goes on to tell us in verse 2, because we were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is what occurs when you get baptized in water. You're going through the Red Sea the way the nation of Israel did. This is what Paul is telling us. And we all ate the same spiritual manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so it may have looked like a rock, okay? But he's telling us here, there was a metaphor that the rock that followed them was Christ. This is why Moses couldn't enter into the, into the promised land. Because the first time he struck the rock, the second time he was supposed to speak to the rock. Had he understood that the rock that followed them was Christ, you don't re-crucify Jesus a second time. One time is Christ crucified for our sins. You speak to the rock. You declare and decree what Christ has done 
on Calvary for the propitiation of our sins. Are you guys with me? Now these things happened to them as an ensample, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. So this is, oh, that's just Old Testament. That doesn't apply for today. No, Paul says these things happen as, as an ensample. A difference between an example and an ensample. Example, I can verbally describe it to you, but an ensample, I have to act it out. And so it was acted out what occurs during salvation, baptism, and the moves of the Spirit. You guys with me? Hebrews 9.9 says, speaking about the things in the Old Testament, that they were symbolic for this present time. So don't don't listen to these people, oh, that's Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews says it's symbolic for this present time. Colossians 2.17, speaking of the Old Testament, says, these things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. You know what causes a shadow? An object is standing in front of a light. And we're going to talk about lights and shadows in a moment. Hebrews 8.5, speaking again about things pertaining to the Old Testament, who serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, make all things according to the pattern that I showed you in the mountain. There is a specific pattern, a specific um, schematic diagram that's in the spirit when it comes to church government. And it has, it has not, it is different and distinct from the gifts of the spirit, but we've confused giftings with government. And so I want to walk with you through this little story here about how a disaster ushered in a dynasty. In 1 Chronicles chapter 13, David has taken over the kingdom, and he says in verse 2, And David said, Let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. In verse 7, it goes on to say, They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahel drove the cart. David and all of Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and with trumpets. I mean, it was a serious worship service. And verse 9 says, when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And he struck him down there because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God. That day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? That was a story that always bothered me when I was a kid growing up. Did Uzzah mean to do wrong? Here they are trying to transport the very covenant of God, the very presence of God, because he's told them, I will meet you between the cherubims. Oh, you talk about, you talk about the ark of the covenant, right? All right. We're not talking about Noah's ark. Let's get that clear. And here they go through this particular passage where there were so many rocks and, and ruts in the road and the, the ox cart almost tipped over and the Ark of the Covenant, the, they represent the very presence of God, was about to slip and fall and hit the ground. And Uzzah 
reached his hand out to keep it from falling. And the Bible says that God killed him. And when I read that story as a kid, I'm like, well, God's not fair. Well, I didn't say it out loud because my mother would have ripped my ears off my head, right? <laughs> but I said to myself, God's not fair. And we wonder, and we see so many ministries with, with so much tremendous zeal and in how they fold within several years. Most ministries don't last past five years. That's a statistical fact. And, and we wonder what's going on. God's not fair. God's not fair. What's going on? See, there was nothing wrong with the ark, but there was something wrong with the way it was being carried. David, when, David did what most men of God do whenever they mess up and fail and make mistakes. They go back into the Word to read the Word, and he realized the, the ark was never supposed to be carried on a fancy ox cart, on a fancy plan and program that men make up with good ideas collectively. But it was supposed to be carried on the shoulders, plural, of the Levites. Uzzah in the Hebrew means natural strength. We're never going to accomplish the things of the Spirit by our own natural strength. He came back in 1 Chronicles 15, and he said this, Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. Then David called for the priests and for the Levites and said to them, You are the heads of the father's households of the Levites. Consecrate yourself, both you and your relatives, that you may bring the ark of the Lord God of Israel back to the place that I have prepared for it. And verse 13, because you did not carry it the right way the first time, the Lord our God made an outburst upon you, for we did not seek him after the due order. There is a due order. See, we could get, it, get caught up in zeal and do the work of God, but when we do the work of God in the way we want to do it, and not the due order in the way that he has always designed for it to be done, we're going to miss up. And then we're going to blame the devil. He gets so much credit. And so uh, let's look at this, because whenever we start talking about revival, I've heard this people preach this passage so many times concerning the, the dedication of the Temple of Solomon. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And so we seek God, we pray, and we try and do all the religious things that we think that we've been taught ecclesiastically since we've grown up in church, and then we wonder why aren't we experiencing this because you see chapters and verses were installed by man. The Archbishop of Canterbury had installed chapters and verses. This was an entire book. When we look at chapter 1, Solomon seeks God. <clears throat> and God comes to him and asks him, what is it that you want? And Solomon says, well, I want wisdom. And God gives him the wisdom. In chapter 2, Solomon gathers experts and plans for the construction. In chapter 3, he lays a foundation and begins construction. In chapter 4, he completes construction and finishes the temple. In chapter 5, the priests and the Levites are set in place and the spirit drops. In chapter 6, they cast vision. And then we, we speaking about the, visit, visit, the vision of the habitation of God, that God would no longer visit but would remain. And then we get to this verse where God's fire consumes the sacrifice and the glory drops on us all. So it's, it's easy to get caught up in zeal and the chase after God, but when everything ends, what happened? 
when we look at the revivals, they're so powerful. We study all these different moves of the spirit. But what happened at Azusa Street? What happened at the latter rain? What happened with the charismatic movement? What happened with the Toronto blessing? What happened with Brownsville? What happened at Lakeland? Why did it end? Because we are constantly getting visits from God, but we're not establishing a place of habitation. What's true in the light has got to be true in the shadow, and what's true in the shadow has got to be true in the light. Because no matter where we are in God, God will have to cut us off from the plan and purpose of his will if we misrepresent that. Amen. It was just a rock, Moses said. I, I want to go into the promised land. You, show, you took me to the top of the mountain and you showed me the promised land. He goes, nope, I can't. You misrepresented me. It may have looked like a rock to you, but that was Christ. And we can't take a chance of you misrepresenting Christ again. One time alone is Christ crucified for our sins. We don't re-crucify Jesus. And so we wonder why we have to get the order right. Let all things be done decently and in, and in order. And some people mistake order for legalism and religiosity. And, and I understand that because I come from old school Pentecostalism. I certainly understand religion and religiosity. Uh, and rules and, and regulations and do's and don'ts. And so, and so it winds up confining people to build their own little kingdom in a corner and their own four walls, and they don't understand the kingdom mindset. And that was the message that Jesus preached was about the kingdom of God. And so it's easy for us to go from one extreme to another and then it'll be all about the kingdom and forget about the local church when Jesus said, I will build my church. That's what he said, I'll build my church, and the church will be the mouthpiece for the kingdom of God and will demonstrate the kingdom of God. And so when God installs ministry in the New Testament, in Ephesians 4.11, he says it like this. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Because that was the object that was standing in front of the light of God's glory. God's light shines upon the fivefold ministry and it creates a shadow in the Old Testament that reaches all the way back to Exodus 28.1 when God tells Moses, now bring me Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priesthood. Read it. Now bring Aaron and his, your brother and his sons, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, Ithamar. So when God installed priesthood, he did it in fives. So the fivefold ministry isn't something new that happened in Ephesians. Okay. It was a fulfillment of the shadow that was cast in the Old Testament during the time of the building of the tabernacle. So can we put that slide up? Moses spent 40 years of his life living in Egypt and had to, and God, before he could have him return back, took him out of Egypt so he can unlearn the worldly system of the pyramid, the hierarchical system. And God says, my kingdom is not a pyramid, but my, but my kingdom is, looks more like a wheel within a wheel. And years ago, when, when John Paul Jackson, uh, who mentored me, began to ask God, show me what the kingdom of God looks like, the government of the kingdom, this is what the Lord told him, go study the human cell. Because first comes the natural, then comes the spiritual. And in the human cell, we have a nucleus, we have an inner circle, and we have an outer circle. And from the outer circle, you see that little slot there that is called vestibules. It allows sugar to enter into the cell. And so he, this is what the Lord told him, study the human cell. And so it looks vastly different 
Ezekiel said, I saw a wheel within a wheel. You remember that, for those of you who read the Bible? Everybody here? All right, all right, cool, cool. And so what's true in the light has to be true in the shadow, and likewise what's true in the shadow has got to be true in the light. Does that make sense? And so when it comes to ministry, God's light, his glory, shines upon the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and that creates a shadow in the Old Testament, and we have the priesthood, Aaron and his four sons. But if what's true in the light is true in the shadow, then what's true in the shadow has got to be true in the light. Otherwise, you make the image grotesque, and no matter where you are in God, ask Moses, God will have to cut you off. doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It just means he's going to move on to someone else as far as purpose fulfillment. What's true in the shadow has got to be true in the light because the priesthood was not equal in authority. It was Aaron and his four sons. Aaron was the high priest and his sons were the priest. Later on, we developed the Levites, and so there was a threefold government of the church. And here in the human cell, you have the nucleus, you have the inner ring, and you have the outer ring. And it's circular. You ever wonder why the cherubim in the Ark of the Covenant, where their wings are touching, it's because it's a snapshot of what's occurring in the throne room. They're not just standing over the throne. They're flying around the throne. And this is a snapshot of what's happening. It's always meant to be circular, a wheel within a wheel. You guys doing okay? All right. And so, yeah, they're processing. And so in the Old Testament, you had the high priest, the priests, and the Levites in the tabernacle. In the New Testament, we have the set man, or in most cases, because the book of Acts was written by the apostles, the apostles, elders, and deacons. It was a threefold government. Hebrews 3.1, the, the high priest is a type and shadow of the apostolic ministry. It says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of your heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, what he is in the light and what he is in the shadow. The book of Hebrews is a comparison of lights and shadows, how the Old Testament is still relevant today, and the, but just some parts take on a spiritual significance, but it's all relevant. Wow, it's quiet here this morning. And so when it came time for, see, when God wants to emphasize something, he doesn't scream, he doesn't shout, he just repeats himself. So when it came time for, um, right, right, anything Jesus says is important, but if it's really important, verily I say unto you. If it's really, really, it's verily, verily I say unto you. So he just repeats himself. And so in the book of Acts, Luke, who's the physician, and the doctors are very precise. They have to be, otherwise they'll kill their patients. And so he's writing the story about the Acts of the Apostles, which is the actual title of the book. I don't know if you know that. We call it the book of Acts. But in the Greek, it's the Acts, the Actos de Apostolos, the Acts of the Apostles. And so what's happening is he writes the story. There is a conflict about um, the qualifications for salvation, and the leadership arises to address these issues. And it tells us in Acts chapter 15, verse 2, that the Apostles... And elders, Acts chapter 15, verse 4, the apostles and elders. Acts chapter 15, verse 6, the apostles and elders. Acts chapter 15, verse 22, the apostles and elders. Acts chapter 15, verse 23, the apostles and elders. In Acts chapter 16, verse 4, the apostles and elders. He, he's, he's trying to make a point here that the government of God will be upon his shoulders. It is not man's government. It is the government of God. You guys doing okay? Why? Because now, if you study church history, you're going to find uh, there's an era in church history called the Apostolic Fathers, and these are a group of men or women that were mentored by somebody mentioned in the New Testament. 
And uh, one of them that was mentored by the Apostle John uh, made this statement. He said that without a threefold government in the church, there is no church. And he took that text from Ecclesiastes 4.12 that a threefold cord is not easily broken. Because three is the number of perfection. For those of you that are coming to my dream class, we're gonna, we study uh, symbolism. And three, numbers have metaphoric meaning. One God, two witness, three perfection, and it goes on and on and on. So three is the number of perfection, not seven. Seven is completion, not perfection. And so there's a threefold government in the church. There is the set person, the visionary, the nucleus that God gives the vision to. And then that's distributed through the eldership and the deacons. Those are the offices, elders and deacons. Now, amongst elders and deacons, we're going to have a multiplicity of gifts. Don't confuse gifts with government. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. But there's more than just a fivefold ministry, right? We have people that flow in the nine gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, or the, what we, some people call the motivational gifts in Romans 12. And so uh, there is, there's a multiplicity of giftings and expressions. It's not that the fivefold ministry is some elite task force. They just have a specific assignment that's given as far as the governmental structure. So don't confuse gifting with government, and most people do. Amen. And that's why pastors are afraid to have apostles come in because they'll take over my church. <laughs> now, you're not understanding how this works. You're trying to put a, a square in a triangle. Okay, it's wrong fit here. Government giftings are two different things. But likewise, you have people that have a gifting, and they think that because they have a specific gift, I'm a prophet. Evangelist, you go sit to the side. I have the word of the Lord. It doesn't work that way. You can have a, a gifting, of, be an ascension gift of a prophet, but be in the office of a deacon. The office and giftings are not synonymous. And so you need to understand that. And so in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now the word angel there is messenger, the set person. And so they're not talking about an angelic messenger from heaven. Okay, that's not the same one because it was the angel of the Lord that brought John the revelation. And then John was to go and give this word to the seven churches, specifically to the angel of each church, the set person whom God has given the vision for that local assembly. You guys doing all right? Uh, we're going to class this morning. Acts chapter 21, 18. And the day following, Paul went into us unto James, and all the elders were present. Paul had to speak to the set person over the church in Jerusalem, which was the apostle James. And the Apostle James was there along with the elders. There was a church government that was in place. A, court, a, a, a threefold cord is not easily broken, the Bible says. In Acts 11.22, and here's, okay, let's, let me back up a little bit here. In Acts chapter, we were studying at the book of Acts in Bible college. And when we get to Acts chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now in the church of Antioch, there was prophets and teachers, and they list five ministers, fivefold ministry, right? But it doesn't say apostles or pastors or evangelists. It says, and they were prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch, and it lists five people, two Jews, two blacks, and one Greek. It was multi-ethnic uh, leadership that reflected this community because uh, it was in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, so which is technically Asia, but the peninsula kind of extends into the uh, Mediterranean Sea, so it's just south of Europe, which is mainly Caucasian, but north of Africa, which is mainly black. 
And so the, the leadership reflected the community in which they served. So it was a five-fold ministry, and I would never forget my teacher in Bible college. I'm still friends with him to this day. God bless his soul. And so and he says, you see, there's no mention of apostle here. And so this shows you here that we can have liberty when it comes to the style of, of church government with whatever it is that we want. And it sounded right, but it was like somebody took their nails on a chalkboard and just began to scratch. And there was something about that that wasn't right, but who, what do I know, right? I'm some kid from the Bronx, a teenager in Bible college. I can't refute this. And then I realized as I began to grow into things of the Lord that when Luke wrote the book of Acts, he did not put chapters and verses. That was installed by the Archbishop of Canterbury centuries later. And so the story actually begins when the church in Jerusalem hears about a revival that's occurring in Antioch with these two black dudes. And one was a prophet and one was a teacher. And they understood, not because they were black, but it needed an apostolic ministry to establish the government of God there. And so in Acts chapter 11, verse 22, the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. The word apostle, literally in the Greek, is a sent one. So he didn't have to reiterate that when he wrote Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Barnabas was sent there as an apostle because in the church of Antioch there was prophets and teachers. You guys doing okay? Okay, so there is a specific order. So now we get to eldership. Amongst eldership, now how does eldership originate? In Exodus chapter 18, verse 17 through 22, Moses' father-in-law, what happens is um, uh, Moses is, is day and night from early morning to the evening. He's judging. In other words, people are coming presenting problems to him. And his father-in-law comes, who was African, by the way. Moses' wife was black. So his father-in-law, Jethro, comes to visit him and says to him, what is it you're doing? He goes, well, the people come to me to inquire of God. And so I judge between, you know, by one brother to another, and, and, and I show them the statutes of God. And he says, the thing that you're doing is going to wear yourself out. You cannot do this alone. Listen to my counsel, and God's going to be with you. And this is what he tells them. He says, I want you to choose amongst the people, okay, amongst, amongst them select people who are able, able men, uh, verse 21, able men, fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, a fourfold qualification to eldership. Number one, able men. That speaks of gifting. Now, I grew up in church, and I can't tell you how many times people were promoted to some type of leadership position because they were very gifted. And gifting is only 25% of the qualifications for eldership. We get so caught up on giftings, and then we wonder, well, did you hear the scandal of this person? Did you hear the scandal of that person? Because we have not built it according to the pattern that God has showed Moses in the mountain. There is a specific pattern for a reason. That's why Solomon said a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And we get caught up on giftings and personality and oratorical abilities, and we, we forget and neglect character. So number one, but you do need gifting because you've got to be able to do something. So number one, able men, and when I say men here, I'm speaking men in the Hebraic mindset, right? God made man both male and female. And so the definition of, actually, the, the, when you read men in the Old Testament, the better word in, in our vernacular would be mankind. It's male and female. Because I know parts of the church have suppressed women in ministry uh, because they don't study. That's why the Bible says study to show yourself approved. And so... 
Uh, so number one is we have to be gifted, able men. Number two, fear God. And fear God speaks of understanding spiritual authority. You can't be disrespectful to spiritual authority and say you understand spiritual authority. Number three, men of truth. Men of truth speaks of transparency and accountability. Okay? And so we are accountable and we're transparent because we have nothing to hide. Why? Because, or we should have nothing to hide, because the enemy who's been stripped of authority on the cross can only move and operate in darkness. And when we're transparent and we bring even our weaknesses to light, Paul said it this way, his strength is perfected in my weakness. Because I'm being open to you about the areas that I'm weak in, God's strength is magnified and flows through me. But when we try and cover ourselves up, that's another message. So men of truth. And number four, hating covetousness. They're not power or position hungry, title seekers, greedy plunderers, self-kingdom builders. This is the fourfold qualification for eldership. Now, who chooses elders? That's another thing, because I grew up in church, and I, I, I know that for me, in the denomination that I was saved under, the Assemblies of God, the eldership was above the pastor. Okay? And or, or some, in some denominations, there's a deacon board that's above, and they dictate to the set person whatever title they give him, pastor, bishop, apostle, whatever. They dictate to him what it's, how he's supposed to run. And, you know, God doesn't have love. God is love, okay? But you know that because God is love, there are certain things that God hates. And one of the things that God hates, he tells us in Revelation, John tells us, is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And the doctrine of Nicolaitans literally means in the Greek, the rule of the people. God hates that. And I'm all for democracy, but in the church, it's not democracy. It's theocracy. So who chooses the elders? Jethro told Moses, you choose the elders. Here's the fourfold qualification. They have to meet this fourfold qualification, but you choose the elders. And, so, and we see that throughout the New Testament as well. In Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas, who were apostles, and when they had ordained elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Titus 1.5, for this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou should set in order, some people that's like a curse word, order, right? And I understand because I came out of a very legalistic, religious denomination and upbringing, so I totally understand that, but the opposite swing of the pendulum doesn't make it balanced. I can't throw certain scriptures out because this one hurt you in the past, and I've been hurt, so I know, I know, I know what I'm talking about. And so, for this cause, I left you in Crete, that thou, that thou, who's he talking to? To an equal leadership? No, he's speaking to Titus. He was the set person over that ministry. That you should set things, set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I have appointed thee. So there is a threefold government of the churches not to be confused with giftings, okay? Even in Kansas City, when the church got started, Bob Jones was not part of the eldership initially. John Paul Jackson was, but Bob Jones was later put on. So gifting and government is not one of the same. Gifting makes up one-fourth of the qualification for eldership, but it's not it in its totality. Jesus. You guys doing okay? Jesus. So I, I want you to understand this because when, 
when God shines his glory on an object, it creates a shadow. And if you make that shadow grotesque, no matter where we are in God, God's going to have to cut us off. And I'm not talking about cutting off like losing your salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. As far as his plans and purposes, he'll just continue moving on without you. And God wants to do things here at RCC. And it's very easy for us to be caught up. And we, we came from, we were in Dominican Republic for a week ministering, and we saw a lot of that. People in the corners with their own, own little mini kingdoms. It's just about my church, my four walls. And it was very difficult for people to break out, and we had to really to impart to them a kingdom mindset. Because what Jesus spoke about, the majority of his message was speaking about the kingdom of God. It wasn't just my little corner, my four walls, and the little vision that God has given me. Think about it. When you look at the book of Revelation, God, Jesus reveals himself to the apostle John. And when John gives the message to each of these seven churches, each of them have a fragment of the vision that he saw. Why is that? Because that's how God created us. So that when we come together in unity, we have the full counsel of God. You have a part. You have a part. You have a part. We come together and we can see the fullness of God. But when we're separated in our own little kingdom, in our own four walls, and we don't understand God's mindset for the kingdom, you guys doing all right? Then we miss what God wants to do on the earth. And then the opposite extreme is a Woodstock mentality where everything's about the kingdom. I'm led of the spirit. I'm here, I'm there, I'm everywhere. And there's no order. And those who are planted in the house of God are the ones that are going to flourish. Jesus said, I will build my church, not the kingdom. He uses the church as the vehicle to build the kingdom. But we have misconstrued the message with the mandate and everything's left aside. And meanwhile, the world is dying. And Jesus said, I pray that you become one. Why? So that the world could know that I'm Jesus. But we got 20,000 denominations in the United States, and we're divided because he prays, uh, he, he baptizes in Jesus' name, and he baptizes in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and, and, and we have two different churches and two different types of baptism. And so we're divided based upon minors, not united based upon majors. I want you to stand. Worship team, if you can come up. You know, David, when that happened with David, he was so angry at God, and he went back, and he sought the Lord, and he said, no one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. Then David called for the priests and the Levites, which is a shadow of elders and deacons, the governmental structure in the church. And he said to him, you are the fathers of the household of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of God of Israel to the place that I prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the right way the first time. The Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him after the due order. Say due order. Say due order. There is a due order when it comes to the government of God. And we're going to seek God, and we want to do the work of God, but we've got to do it God's way and not our way. And we have nullified, nullified the word of God for the sake of our traditions. And this one-man pastoral system is not going to work. 
Uzzah put his hand to the ark and God killed him. And there's many things you can draw out of that, but the fact is one man can't hold the glory of God by himself. It was never intended to be carried by one man, but on the shoulders, plural, of the ministry. And this is why even Polycarp, who was one of the apostolic fathers, who was mentored by the apostle John, made this statement, without a threefold government in the church, there is no church. There is a set person. Could you put that picture slide again? There is a set person. There is the eldership and there are deacons. This is the government of God. And it's not a pyramid. It is not a pyramid at all. It is circular. Because God gives someone the vision. Okay? And that, in this house, God gave Pastor George the vision to start this church here in Apopka. And so the vision is where the DNA is, the nucleus. It's the center of it. And then from that is guarded by the leadership of the elders and then, of course, the ministry of the deacons, which is the anointed servants. And so this is the threefold government of the church, never meant to be hierarchical. And that's why Moses spent 40 years in Egypt learning, how, learning government the wrong way, but had to go for 40 years in the wilderness to unlearn what he learned before he can go back and deliver people and show them it wasn't meant to be about a hierarchical system. But it was meant to be about a round table. I can't tell you how many times I'm in the front row and PG whispers over to me, if you have anything from the Lord, yeah. go ahead. Wait a second, but he's, he's the top of the pyramid. Shouldn't he just deliver the word of the Lord? He understands that there's a multiplicity of giftings. Yes. And that the Spirit will speak through many of us. And so it's circular. Or Ezekiel said, I saw a wheel within a wheel. And in the wheel was what? Oh, I saw multifaceted creatures, an eagle, a lion, a man, and an ox. And an eagle is a type of the apostolic, excuse me, of the prophetic ministry. A lion is a type of the apostolic ministry. And so it talks about this, the ministry gifts, but the ministry, those, those, those animals, that creature was inside this wheel. And this wheel was the government of God, which will be upon his shoulders, not on man's shoulders. And so if there's anything I want to impart is that God wants to pour wine. But he wants to pour it in a place that has a new wineskin that can contain that wine. That it won't burst because of our traditions. You nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. And God, wants to, God doesn't want a place of visitation. He wants a place of habitation. He wants a place that he can call home. And when the dedication was over and the spirit fell and the priest could no longer stand, Solomon prayed, Lord, that you would make this place a place of habitation a place that you can remain because the world's not going to be saved because of our personalities or our oratorical abilities they're going to be saved because of the jesus that they see in us john the baptist said i must decrease and he must increase and christ who when he ascended upon high he led captivity captives and he gave gifts unto men and he gave a fifth of each of these gifts apostles prophets evangelists pastors and teachers but it's more than just that because it's not just that. Those five ascension gifts were given to the church to build you up and equip you so you can do the work of the ministry. And we go out as one man, not looking like you or I, but looking like Jesus, talking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, emoting like Jesus. Let him pour the new wine. Let us provide the wineskin. He wants to provide the fire. Are we going to give them the sacrifice? Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. For more information about us, please visit remnantchristiancenter.com.